Hello, you're listening to An Adequate Podcast by me, John Paul Flintoff. It's about creative self-expression through writing, drawing and speaking. And it's adequate because I can't do perfect. I had been trapped inside my body and completely unable to communicate for about 14 years. I was able to communicate again, although my communication was extremely limited. I was able to indicate yes and no and give a glimpse of what I was thinking through my facial expressions. That was the electronic voice of Martin Pistorius. Just thinking about the 14 years he couldn't communicate is a reminder to me that the chance to speak and be heard is a privilege, a blessing, a gift. This podcast is all about self-expression, with a particular focus, at least for a while, on public speaking, because that's the subject of my latest book. Later in this episode, you'll be able to hear the full interview with Martin. But first, I want to share with you a bit of work in progress. Because right now, as I record this, I'm preparing for my book to be published in a month or so. And I thought that as well as telling you about public speaking, the subject of the book, it might be interesting to give you a glimpse behind the scenes of writing and editing and publishing any book. In subsequent episodes, I hope to talk to my agent about how we prepared the proposal, and perhaps also to the voice artist who stepped in to record the audiobook because... When the day came for me to do it myself, I came down with symptoms of COVID and had to isolate. I'm curious to know what it's like to read somebody else's book, because that too is a kind of public speaking. But I mentioned some work in progress. As part of publishing this book, I've been working with my publisher on ideas to help promote it, to get people talking about the subject, if not just about my book. As a former magazine editor myself, I know that nobody wants to run a piece going on about how brilliant I am, or plugging the book like a maniac. So I came up with the idea of writing about my greatest speaking failures. Liking that idea, the publicity whiz who works with my publisher Short Books sent it to a magazine. The magazine liked the idea and asked me to write 1500 words on the subject. I've now written and submitted almost exactly that number of words, And in keeping with the ethos of this adequate, not perfect podcast, I want to share the work as it is, knowing that the magazine may ask me to change it, or indeed refuse to publish it. In other words, by sharing it now, I like to think I'm taking a tiny bit of a risk. I'd love to know what you think about it, so please get in touch to tell me. You can find me through my website, flintoff.org. Or better still, you can send me a voice message directly through the Anchor app with which I record this podcast. Why is public speaking scary? Because for most of history, if you had lots of eyeballs on you, it meant you were about to be gobbled up. For thousands of years, hardly anyone knew what it felt like to be stared at and listened to by large groups of others. Then, about 2,500 years before Donald Trump, Pericles told the ancient Greeks that democracy involved persuasive speech rather than overrunning the marketplace and whacking people. Trump, plainly, didn't study Pericles. Today, we're all public speakers, at least in theory. An audience of billions waits to hear us on every social media platform. And it's not as if we lack things to say. Just listen to yourself, muttering at the TV, YouTube videos, this newspaper. 
but we keep it to ourselves because evolution hasn't caught up with technology. Forget global audiences of strangers. Most of us dread speaking even to a small gathering of friends and family. I certainly did, until I had spoken publicly often enough for all my greatest fears to have come true. My fears were not particularly unusual. What if nobody turns up? Will I stumble and fall on my way across stage to the microphone? What can I say that hasn't been said already? Does the audience hate people like me for some reason? What if I forget what I meant to say? What if somebody asks a question I can't answer? What if I say something offensive? What if people walk out? Or if I find myself on stage with my flies undone? Just reading those questions is enough to get hearts racing, beads of sweat congealing on cold foreheads. Because studies show that for many people, public speaking is more frightening than death itself. At this point, I should probably say that I've had some wonderful speaking experiences and received glowing feedback, lest you conclude that I must be the worst speaker of all time. But the talks that stick in my mind are the disasters. Of the list I just read, the only one that hasn't happened yet is speaking with my zip down. And that's only because somebody kindly pointed it out as I prepare to go on stage. Literally nobody attended a lecture I gave at a fashionable London venue because the hosts had entirely forgotten to include it in their marketing. Much worse was the event that sold just one ticket and had to be cancelled. I was crushed. In something like a reversal, I was once telephoned while cooking dinner to be told that my audience was waiting for me at a venue 30 minutes distant. I had no record of ever being informed about the event until that moment, but dashed away from the cooker to give it my best, apologising profusely for my lateness. The stumbling, as I walked to the mic, happened at school. School audiences aren't especially forgiving. This, by the way, is a specimen of what rhetoricians call litotes, meaning comic understatement. Shame, they chanted in the playground afterwards. Shame, shame. And that was the rule of three. See also Tony Blair's education, education, education. As for having nothing new to say, in 2014 I was flown to Mexico to speak at a massive conference and watched several much better known speakers before me say more or less everything I had planned to say. The audience that hated people like me that was in Belfast. I was a wanker from London, said the most outspoken among them, but it wasn't all bad because despite this unhappy circumstance, he said, I turned out in the end to be all right. Happy day. But it had been painful in the early part of my talk to feel myself the focus of so much contempt. This anecdote may possibly be a specimen of that fashionable rhetorical novelty, the humble brag. Uh, which itself is an oxymoron. My greatest fear had always been forgetting what to say. You might imagine I should have learned my talks by heart, but no, because you always speak to a specific audience at a particular time and there's always something to amend, to throw in or abandon. If you keep exactly to a script, you might as well record it on video and send that instead. 
So, yes, I sometimes forgot what I wanted to say, but it was never a big deal. In fact, I think a part of my brain knew perfectly well that I didn't need it and conspired to make me forget it. Questions to which I don't know the answer turned out to be no problem at all. I very quickly learned to say, I don't know, can I get back to you? And audiences tended to be satisfied. But in Sheffield in 2018, I stepped on stage only to hear a forceful objection from a man in the large audience. He was holding a microphone left over from the previous Q&A and used it to demand that I be pushed back, if absolutely necessary, to another day so that the Q&A might continue. That was awkward, not least because there was no other day. Once, while I was speaking at a large company, half the audience walked out. Not all at once, mind you, but gradually in ones and twos. I made a decision on the spur of the moment when the first people left that I should not ignore them. So politely, entirely without sarcasm, I said goodbye and thank you for coming. But I couldn't keep saying that again and again and again. So eventually I said, there may be others who decide to leave at some point. To save wasting the time of those who remain, I'd like to thank you all in advance for having stayed as long as you did. And from then on, we all pretended to ignore the people who walked out. On the train home, I felt sick. I must be totally useless. Desperate for reassurance, I got off the train and phoned a friend who does similar work. She was in the middle of a dinner party, but took the call outside. No, I've never had that happen, she said. Oh, the shame. Next morning, feeling like a condemned man, I telephoned the woman who had hired me to speak. I was very surprised to hear her apologise for the poor quality of my audience the day before, as if it had been their fault or hers. It hadn't, but it was salutary to see things from this different perspective. You may have heard that it's a good idea if you follow somebody serious to be funny and vice versa. And you may know either because you've given lots of speeches yourself or just heard them that there's often a point where the mood in any given speech changes. After telling you about a series of disasters, the earnest TED speaker reveals how the problem was finally resolved. Or a would-be tearjerker tells you lots of lovely funny stories and then announces that somebody died. Well, this is the point where I change the mood in this story. I'd like to pretend that I can laugh about all my speaking failures tell you they made me stronger. Well, they probably did make me stronger, but I still want to cry when I think of the worst one. It wasn't painful at the time. In fact, I thought it went reasonably well. But a few hours after getting home, I received an email informing me that I had said something offensive. We have had to apologise and distance ourselves from you. I was upset, confused. I would never intentionally have said what I had apparently been heard by 700 people to say. I must have misspoken. I phoned at once to ask if I could come back, explain myself, answer questions, apologise. No, 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 and no. Nobody wants to experience this kind of thing. And for many people, including my friend at that dinner party, they may never happen. 
But the hard lessons can be liberating, they really can. I once had two people in a single audience describe me as brilliant and an arrogant twat. It's worth pausing for a moment to think about this because they both saw exactly the same person make exactly the same speech. I realised with the force of revelation that their assessment said less about me than it did about them. Only by standing in front of people often enough have I learned that I have no control over what they think of me. And that, just to be clear, is a good thing. It means I'm free to say what I want to say. If people don't like it, well, to fret about that is like fretting about bad weather or traffic lights. And if they do like it, uniformly, I ask myself if I may be wasting my time merely preaching to the converted. Because from Pericles to Zoom, there have only ever been two motives for public speech. To shape the audience out of its complacency or to offer reassurance. If you only ever do one of those, people will lose interest. If you switch between them, you'll probably fail occasionally and you'll succeed occasionally too. And if you don't speak at all, well, you yield the stage to the likes of Trump. Now, I'm aware that the article I've just read to you is not entirely encouraging about public speaking, so I'd like to remind you how valuable it is to have a voice, to be able to say how you are and what you think. It's time to hear more from Martin Pistorius, whose electronic voice you heard at the start of this episode. I recorded the interview you're about to hear a few years ago, having previously interviewed Martin for the Sunday Times some year before that some years before that, sorry, excuse the adequate but far from perfect reading. I should apologise in advance for the poor quality of the audio on this interview. I just hope you'll stick with it for six minutes, bearing in mind how hard it is for Martin to communicate at all. To answer my questions, he had to type his answers and then press a button to speak them. This means long intervals of silence, most of which I've edited down but I've kept one long silence at the beginning to give you a sense of what the conversation was actually like. And I've kept in the muddled beginning where I failed to give Martin sufficient time to answer my greeting and his hello John Paul arrived in the middle of my next comment. Hi Martin. As you know, John Paul. Hi. As you know, I'm uh, recording a series of interviews with people about conversations that changed everything for them. And I'm, Really delighted that you're willing to be part of it. Thank you. I think it is a great idea. We, um, we first met when I, I interviewed you for the Sunday Times in London um, about your book. And I, it was a really incredible story that you tell in the book, Ghost Boy. And um, in many ways, it's a book about communication. And uh, so, so tell me more. Thank you. Yes, I remember our first meeting well. It's great that we have been able to stay in contact. 
So out of all the conversations that you've had, which one have you chosen to talk about? There were a number of conversations I thought about, but the one which first sprung to mind ironically wasn't a conversation in the usual sense. It took place about 12 years ago. Prior to this conversation, I had been trapped inside my body and completely unable to communicate for about 14 years. I was beginning to communicate again, although my communication was extremely limited. Essentially, I was able to indicate yes and no, and give a glimpse of what I was thinking through my facial expressions. Despite all this, the conversation has stayed with me ever since. I think partly because it was one of those times in life where what happens determines the course it will take, but mostly because of what was said. We've been in communication by email before doing this interview now, and you, you told me that the conversation you have in mind was very much centered around the, the type and particular type of communication software that you were going to have to commit to living with for, for a long time. Yes, in this case, communication software that would form part of an augmentative and alternative communication system. This is basically about alternative ways of communicating. Professor Stephen Hawking uses such a system to communicate. Anyway, I was at the point where I needed to decide what communication software and assistive devices we would get. You get a variety of systems with different capabilities. We had information about them. So there's a, a really uh, worrying sense of not knowing what, what you need to know. And also, I guess that there's a huge amount of expense attached to this decision. Yes, especially back then. My father had inherited some money which we would use to pay for whatever I chose. I felt I had one chance, so I didn't want to get it wrong. Getting it wrong would mean I would be limited to what the communication system could say. I could outgrow it or perhaps even end up with something I couldn't use. So for me, it was a monumental decision, one which I agonized about, as I realized it could be a truly life-changing one. And, and uh, where were you living at the time? In South Africa. I am originally from South Africa. The plan was for my sister who lived here in the UK to bring the augmentative and alternative communication software when she came to visit. My parents, particularly my mother, had been discussing the options with me for a few days. But I just wasn't sure. It was as if the gravity of the decision had out of fear of getting it wrong paralyzed me. Then one morning I was lying on my bed. My father was getting me dressed and my mother came into the room. I remember it so clearly. She stood in the doorway, leaning against the door frame, holding the piece of paper containing the list of options we had compiled. As with these types of conversations, my mother started talking about the options and asked which ones. I still wasn't sure. Then my father said to me, sometimes in life you just need to make a decision, even if it turns out to be the wrong one in order to move forward. I thought about that for a while and it was like suddenly a weight was lifted. I felt like a sense of freedom, perhaps you could even say permission to get it wrong. The decisions I made later that day worked out favorably. So that conversation has really stayed with you. Yes, 
we make decisions every day, some easy and straightforward, and sometimes they are right, sometimes they are wrong. Then there are those moments in life when we all are faced with a difficult decision. Difficult in the sense that you are really not sure what the right decision is or you are fearful of making the wrong one. Now, if I am faced with such a decision, I always think back to what my father said and I just make a decision. Trusting that if it happens to be the wrong decision, then I have at least moved one step closer to the right decision. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Martin. It's a privilege as ever to talk to you. Thanks, John Paul. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to an adequate podcast with me, John Paul Flintoff. If you want to hear more episodes on the theme of self-expression, please subscribe. I'm very keen to make this podcast interactive. And if you listen with the Anchor app, you can send me a voice message with your comments and questions. Bye for now.